Welcome to Words to Live By, a podcast series hosted by the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute. Each week, we will share some of the wit and wisdom of Ronald Reagan. In essence, Words to Live By, made up of radio addresses and speeches he delivered from the 1960s through the 1980s. Let's look back some 40 years ago when President Reagan spoke to a convention of the National Association of Evangelicals in Florida on March 8, 1983. In that historic speech, he publicly referred to the Soviet Union as an evil empire. Actually, for the second time in his career. Do you recall the first time he used the phrase? Answer? The word evil in relation to the Soviet Union was first used in a 1982 speech at the British House of Commons. What then is our course? Must civilization perish in a hail of fiery atoms? Must freedom wither in a quiet, deadening accommodation with totalitarian evil? Our military strength is a prerequisite to peace. But let it be clear, we maintain this strength in the hope it will never be used. For the ultimate determinant in the struggle is not going, that's now going on in the world, will not be bombs and rockets, but a test of wills and ideas, a trial of spiritual resolve. The values we hold, the beliefs we cherish, the ideals to which we are dedicated. The British people know that given strong leadership, time, and a little bit of hope, the forces of good ultimately rally and triumph over evil. Some considered President Reagan's use of the term evil empire to be brilliant democratic rhetoric. Others, including many within the international diplomatic community, denounced it as irresponsible bombast. Looking back, when he characterized the Soviet Union as an evil empire, it's pretty on point, isn't it? I mean, Russia's current aggression in Ukraine could certainly be characterized as evil. Sounds like some things kind of never change. So in today's podcast, we're going to look at that famous speech, but with additional insight from Russian Refusnik and eventual Deputy Prime Minister of Israel, Natan Sharansky. When Sharansky was imprisoned in a Soviet gulag, he learned about the president's speech, the evil empire speech, and thought to himself, quote, finally, the leader of the free world called a spade a spade, called the Soviet Union an evil empire, and it means we believed the days of the Soviet Union are numbered. While the Western media blasted the president, those behind the Iron Curtain celebrated. So what was the basis for this speech? Do you remember what President Reagan's strategy was? Let's review. As the foundation of my foreign policy, I decided we had to send a powerful message to the Russians that we weren't going to stand by anymore while they armed and financed terrorists and subverted democratic governments. I wanted peace through strength, not peace through a piece of paper. In my speeches and press conferences, I deliberately set out to say some frank things about the Russians, to let them know there were some new fellows in Washington who had a realistic view of what they were up to and weren't going to let them get away with it. At my first press conference, I was asked whether we could trust the Soviet Union, and I said the answer to that question could be found in the writings of Soviet leaders. It had always been their philosophy that it was moral to lie or cheat for the purposes of advancing communism. 
I said they had told us, without meaning to, that they couldn't be trusted. I wanted to let them know that in attempting to continue their policy of expansionism, that they were prolonging the nuclear arms race and keeping the world on the precipice of disaster. I also wanted to send the signal that we weren't going to be deceived by words into thinking they'd changed their stripes. We wanted deeds, not words. So there it is, the warm-up to the home run which was leveled on March 8, 1983. In the States, he was widely criticized. But if you consider the president's faith, his belief in the goodness of man, and his fervor to denounce those who restrain freedom, it's easy to understand why he chose to deliver a stern political denunciation of Soviet evil to this particular group. He always saw things clearly could cut through the political mumbo-jumbo and go right to the chase, the difference between darkness and light, the difference between evil and good. He'd been in office at this point a little more than two years. He'd already dealt with two irascible Soviet leaders, first Brezhnev, then Andropov, who violently suppressed religious freedom. Here's an excerpt from the speech, the president's words as delivered to the evangelical enclave. And I think you'll be stunned to hear how relevant this speech is. Let's listen. And finally, that shrewdest of all observers of American democracy, Alexis de Tocqueville, put it eloquently, after he had gone on a search for the secret of America's greatness and genius. And he said, not until I went into the churches of America and heard her pulpits aflame with righteousness did I understand the greatness and the genius of America. America is good. And if America ever ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. Well, I'm pleased to... I'm pleased to be here today with you who are keeping America great by keeping her good. Only through your work and prayers those of millions of others can we hope to survive this perilous century and keep alive this experiment in liberty, this last best hope of man. Obviously, much of this new political and social consensus I've talked about is based on a positive view of American history, one that takes pride in our country's accomplishments and record. But we must never forget no government schemes are going to perfect man. We know that living in this world means dealing with what philosophers would call the phenomenology of evil, or as theologians would put it, the doctrine of sin. There is sin and evil in the world, and we're enjoined by Scripture and the Lord Jesus to oppose it with all our might. Our nation, too, has a legacy of evil with which it must deal. The glory of this land has been its capacity for transcending the moral evils of our past. For example, the long struggle of minority citizens for equal rights, once a source of disunity and civil war, is now a point of pride for all Americans. We must never go back. There is no room for racism, anti-Semitism, or other forms of ethnic and racial hatred in this country.
I know that you've been horrified, as have I, by the resurgence of some hate groups preaching bigotry and prejudice. Use the mighty voice of your pulpits and the powerful standing of your churches to denounce and isolate these hate groups in our midst. The commandment given us is clear and simple. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. sad episodes exist in our past, any objective observer must hold a positive view of American history, a history that has been the story of hopes fulfilled and dreams made into reality. Especially in this century, America has kept alight the torch of freedom, but not just for ourselves, but for millions of others around the world. And this brings me to my final point today. During my first press conference as president, in answer to a direct question, I pointed out that as good Marxist-Leninists, the Soviet leaders have openly and publicly declared that the only morality they recognize is that which will further their cause, which is world revolution. I think I should point out I was only quoting Lenin, their guiding spirit, who said in 1920 that they repudiate all morality that proceeds from supernatural ideas, that's their name for religion, or ideas that are outside class conceptions. Morality is entirely subordinate to the interests of class war, and everything is moral that is necessary for the annihilation of the old exploiting social order and for uniting the proletariat. Well, I think the refusal of many influential people to accept this elementary fact of Soviet doctrine illustrates an historical reluctance to see totalitarian powers for what they are. We saw this phenomenon in the 1930s. We see it too often today. This doesn't mean we should isolate ourselves and refuse to seek an understanding with them. I intend to do everything I can to persuade them of our peaceful intent, to remind them that it was the West that refused to use its nuclear monopoly in the 40s and 50s for territorial gain and which now proposes 50% cut in strategic ballistic missiles and the elimination of an entire class of land-based intermediate-range nuclear missiles. <laughs> At the same time, however, they must be made to understand we will never compromise our principles and standards. We will never give away our freedom we will never abandon our belief in God. stop searching for a genuine peace, but we can assure none of these things America stands for through the so-called nuclear freeze solutions proposed by some. So I urge you to speak out against those who would place the United States in a position of military and moral inferiority. You know, I've always believed that old Screwtape reserved his best efforts for those of you in the church 
So in your discussions of the nuclear freeze proposals, I urge you to beware the temptation of pride, the temptation of blithely uh, declaring yourselves above it all and label both sides equally at fault, to ignore the facts of history and the aggressive impulses of an evil empire, to simply call the arms race a giant misunderstanding and thereby remove yourself from the struggle between right and wrong and good and evil. While America's military strength is important, let me add here that I've always maintained that the struggle now going on for the world will never be decided by bombs or rockets, by armies or military might. The real crisis we face today is a spiritual one. At root, it is a test of moral will and faith. Yes, change your world. One of our founding fathers, Thomas Paine, said, we have it within our power to begin the world over again. We can do it, doing together what no one church could do by itself. God bless you and thank you very much. We'll hear from Natan Sharansky and more from Ronald Reagan's speech right after this message. The Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation is the nonprofit organization created by President Reagan himself and specifically charged by him with continuing his legacy and sharing his principles, individual liberty, economic opportunity, global democracy, and national pride. We must remain vigilant and work together to share these conservative principles with younger generations. Your role is critical to move our mission forward Thank you for your continued support. Please visit reaganfoundation.org slash give. That's reaganfoundation.org slash give. Now back to the story. President Reagan's unshakable, lifelong opposition to communism and staunch support of human rights helped to free hundreds of millions of people around the globe. Notwithstanding his vocal criticism of the evil empire, his behind-the-scenes diplomacy was crucial in securing permission for thousands of Soviet Jews to immigrate to Israel. But he also reached out to foreign leaders to secure freedom for individuals held as political prisoners. President Reagan's commitment echoes to this day in the voices of men and women seeking freedom around the world. One person who lived to tell the story of Reagan's commitment to human freedom is Natan Sharansky. If you visit the Reagan Library, his story is featured in the Voices of Freedom Gallery. So, well, who is he? He was a chess prodigy and a mathematician in the Soviet Union. In 1973, he was denied a visa to emigrate to Israel and began to protest the decision. Charged with treason, he served 11 years in Siberian labor camps and prisons. In 1986, he was exchanged for two Soviet spies and emigrated to Israel finally. At his first meeting with Ronald Reagan, he said, Thank you for telling the truth in your speeches. They were smuggled into the gulag. For the rest of his life, he championed freedom and continued to preach that all the resources of a superpower cannot isolate a man who hears the voice of freedom, a voice I heard from the very chamber of my soul. In 2008, Natan Sharansky was presented with the Ronald Reagan Freedom Award, and here's an excerpt from that speech describing the impact of President Reagan's fearless, powerful language. Let's listen. You saw that just now 
I was taken back to that very important, emotional day when they called President Reagan. But this was a really unique day, when the morning I was in Soviet prison and at night I was in Jerusalem, where there was the wall celebrating freedom with my wife and my country. It was really a day when I was taken straight from hell to paradise, from the ocean of hatred to the ocean of love. And that was emotionally maybe the most powerful day of my life. But it takes me also to the other day, which was also very emotional. The day when President Reagan called to me. Of course, he couldn't do it by telephone, because there were no telephones in prison. But he called to me and to every prisoner in the Soviet gulag through Pravda newspaper, because we were lucky. We were permitted in Soviet prison, if you're not in a punishing cell, to read Pravda newspaper. And there was a big article condemning President Reagan, who dared to call the Soviet Union an evil empire. And we were absolutely bewildered. It is not permitted in prison, in Soviet prison, to communicate between the cells. And there are different ways to communicate. Less risky is through more. Tapping. A little bit more risky, but more effective, by talking through the tubes. But by far more risky, but most effective, to talk through the toilets. At that moment, you forgot about all the precautions. We jumped on the toilets. We tried to communicate to all our friends who were in punishing cells that could not read Soviet newspaper Pravda. We tried to inform them that finally the leader of the free world called a spade a spade, said the Soviet Union an evil empire, and it means, we believed, it means the days of the Soviet Union are numbered. You can ask why it was so important for us. Simply because it was irritating the Soviet Union? Why was it so good? The political wrong, absolutely inappropriate statements. The problem is, what we dissidents knew, that through all our struggle, we knew that Soviet society looks powerful, looks ugly, looks aggressive, but it's extremely weak from inside. Knowing and understanding the Soviet mind was part of the president's success. In his autobiography, he laid it out. During my watch as president, there was nothing I wanted to do more than lessen the risk of nuclear war. Our relationship with the Soviets was based on détente, a French word the Russians had interpreted as freedom to pursue whatever policies of subversion, aggression, and expansionism they wanted anywhere in the world. Every Soviet leader since Lenin had said the goal of the Soviet Union was to spread communism throughout the world. Except for a brief time out during World War II, the Russians had been our de facto enemies for almost 65 years. All this while, their policies had been devoted to the single purpose of destroying democracy and imposing communism. During the post-war years, America repeatedly stood up to the threat of Soviet expansionism, going to the far corners of the world to defend freedom. Turkey, Greece, Korea, Southeast Asia, and elsewhere. It was our policy that this great democracy of ours had a special obligation to help bring freedom to other peoples. Sometimes the price of defending freedom was very high. Many brave Americans made the ultimate sacrifice. Yet America had always been willing to pay the price of defending human liberty. Was Ronald Reagan a warmonger as characterized by the left? Or was he a freedom fighter? Was the military buildup an effort to bring about war? 
or an effort to bring about peace, an effort to bring people to the table to defend human liberty. History supports his effort, and as Margaret Thatcher said, he ended the Cold War without firing a shot. On Human Rights Day in 1986, he invited Russian refuseniks Natan Sharansky and Yuri Orlov to the White House. By now, Gorbachev was leading the Soviet Union and showed a minimal interest in easing the Soviet sledgehammer on those seeking political asylum. President Reagan said, Today we renew our allegiance to those human rights which all free men cherish and which we Americans in particular hold so dear. It's love of freedom that binds a people who are so richly diverse. Unites us in purpose and it makes us one nation. At birth, our country was christened with a declaration that spoke of self-evident truths, the foremost of which was that each and every individual is endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights. And our creed as Americans is that these rights, these human rights, are the property of every man, woman, and child on this planet. And that a violation of human rights anywhere is the business of free people everywhere. When talking about human rights, we're not referring to abstract theory or ungrounded philosophy. Jefferson, who penned our great Declaration of Independence, years later wrote, freedom of religion, freedom of the press, freedom of the person under the protection of habeas corpus, and trial by juries impartially selected. These principles form the bright constellation which has guided our steps through an age of revolution and transformation. Well, our country does not have an unblemished record. We've had to overcome our shortcomings and ensure equal justice for all. And yet we can be proud that respect for the rights of the individual has been an essential element, a basic principle, if you will, of American government. Indeed, we've learned through painful experiences that respect for human rights is essential to peace and ultimately to our own freedom. A government which does not respect the rights of its own people and laws is unlikely to respect those of its neighbors. In this century, democratic governments have not started wars. Our confidence today also comes from the realization that the mystique of communism has at long last been shattered. Young intellectuals can no longer be seduced by a philosophy that has so blatantly and demonstrably failed. The only thing produced in abundance by Marxism-Leninism has been deprivation and tyranny. From Ethiopia to Cuba, from the Soviet Union itself, which is beginning to fall even further behind the Western democracies, to Vietnam, throughout the communist world, the cupboards are empty and the jails are full. This is the natural consequence of a fatally flawed philosophy. The other day someone told me the difference between a democracy and a people's democracy. It's the same difference between a jacket and a straitjacket. <laughs> We're honored this morning to have with us Mr. Yuri Orlov and Mr. Natan Sharansky, who, along with other brave individuals, took it upon themselves to monitor Soviet compliance with the human rights provisions of the Helsinki Awards. Mr. Orloff, Mr. Sharansky, and their colleagues, people of extraordinary moral courage, have suffered. Many are even now in labor camps or Siberian exile for the ideals that we proclaim today. Mr. Anatoly Marchenko, 
who we're saddened to hear recently died while in prison, was a martyr for the cause of human rights. The Soviet Union, along with 34 other European and North American nations, freely signed the Helsinki Accords 11 years ago. Mr. Orloff and Mr. Sharansky, I can promise you, Mr. Marchenko and so many others have not died in vain. The United States intends to hold the Soviet Union to the human rights commitments it made at Helsinki. The Soviet government, despite a few gestures this year, gestures that reflect posturing more than flexibility, continues its systematic violation of human rights. The new Soviet emigration law, for example, purports to ease restrictions. Yet for far too many, the opposite is true. The restriction of emigration, the suppression of dissent, the lengthy separation of families and spouses, the continued imprisonment of religious activists in Ukraine and throughout the Soviet Union are the orders of the day. These realities remain unacceptable, and we will continue to do our utmost to press for change and to bring our moral and diplomatic weight to bear on behalf of those brave souls who speak out within the Soviet bloc. We and our allies are, for example, doing this at the meeting of the Conference on Security and Cooperation in Europe, which is now taking place in Vienna. Today, that's our job, our duty. America must continue to be a beacon of hope, sending this message to the oppressed of all nations. Those who suffer from freedom, or suffer for freedom, are not alone. We think of them, and we're with them. And that's what Human Rights Day is all about. I want to thank each and every one of you for what you're doing to further this cause. Now, I thank you and God bless you and I understand it's time for me to sign the proclamation. Thank you for listening. For more information on the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute, including information on how to become a member, information on upcoming exhibits at the Reagan Library, and more information on the legacy of President Reagan, please visit reaganfoundation.org. And don't forget to like and follow the Reagan Foundation on all social media platforms. Don't forget to subscribe to the Words to Live By podcast in your iTunes or Google Play stores and on other podcast platforms as they become available. New episodes of Words to Live By come out every Tuesday. Like what you hear? Check out our A Reagan Forum podcast, featuring great speeches delivered at the Reagan Library. New episodes drop every Thursday. And don't forget to follow at Ronald Reagan on Facebook, at Ronald Reagan 40 on Twitter, and Reagan Foundation on YouTube. Also, search for us on SoundCloud and Stitcher. Thank you.